Hi, friends. This is Dick Flax bringing another episode with Daraka Laramore Hall of Talking Strategy, Making History. And today we have the particular honor, so to speak, of having as our guest the editor in chief of the magazine Jewish Currents, Ariel Angel. This is the first of a couple of episodes we're planning to do about the Israel-Palestine situation. And it's a good way to start to have Ariel and Jewish Currents as the sort of kickoff. Because Jewish Currents, in a way, is the organ, the published organ, so to speak, of whatever there is of a Jewish left in the United States at this point. It's a magazine with about 75 years of history. It was started within the Communist Party framework. It had a series, two very venerable editors during that period, and and it struggled with that relationship because the discovery that the Soviet Union was not only not a haven, but was actually a a center of anti-Semitism really impacted that magazine, but they maintained a certain independence with a very small readership, but a a very loyal and aging readership. I was one of those readers from, I think, the time I was in college. I don't know how seriously I took it as a magazine uh, to pay a lot of attention to, but I always tried to read, read it. For a long time, it was edited by a really interesting scholar of uh, Jewish Jewish history uh, and Jewish life named Morris Shappies. And my wife, Mickey, was really a student of Morris Shappies for a number of years in the Yiddish sort of educational world coming out of the, the, the communist Jewish left in New York. So, and then I did know uh, that the, the, the magazine was taken over by Larry Bush, who was new generation uh, coming out of that tradition. He really transformed the magazine into a far more open and readable thing with a lot of art and poetry as well as as regular analysis and journalism and so forth. And he did something very brilliant, in my opinion, which was to decide when he retired to find a new generation of editors and people who would take literally take over the magazine. And it wasn't important, uh, as, as important as it used might have been in earlier decades, that that group of new people be linked directly to the tra- particular tradition that the magazine came out of. It was something else. And miraculously, and I really think it, and I don't believe in miracles in a theological sense, but it is a kind of miracle that that, that you guys, Ariel, who took over the magazine, did some wonders to it that I don't know that Larry expected, but that really have transformed it into something far more significant than it ever was. I should add as a final caveat that I'm a member of something called the Council, Advisory Council to the magazine. I'm not sure fully what that council is, is, was intended to do, but it is a kind of link to the past in some ways. That's one feature of it, I think. And that's that's good. And it's probably a good sounding board for, for the people who actually produce the magazine to have some of us in that setting. And we, and we provide a link to communities. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring Ariel on 
today because I want people to know about the magazine who don't now know it. So welcome after that introduction. Thanks for having me. So tell us in your in your view, what is the magazine about now and what are you trying to accomplish and with what results so far as you see it? Well, first of all, thank you for that introduction. And obviously, you know, almost better than me about the long history of the magazine, but maybe I'll just talk a bit about the present. I think there is a way in which we obviously are inheriting a very different world than uh, our predecessors, but we are trying to, in a way, uh, restore a sense of the radicalism of our forebears uh, to its pages. And for us, that has a lot to do with the question of Zionism and anti-Zionism, the question of how we relate to the Jewish state and the ways in which that has filtered into American Jewish institutional life in the United States. Those questions are, you know, live alongside questions of broader questions about capitalism in the United States, questions about feminism, abolitionism, all kinds of different ideas. And we try to explore all of it. We hold in one hand sort of questions of the Jewish left, questions of the left generally in places where they overlap. And, and that's, that's really our, our major mandate in this moment. I mean, obviously I'm speaking to you more than two months after October 7th, almost three. And for us right now, that has been our major focus, both how the war on Gaza is being conducted uh, on the ground and also how that affects how American politics feeds into that destruction and also how that affects, you know, the way that po that politics is playing out in the United States, particularly, Dick, you mentioned the weaponization of anti-Semitism, particularly on that front on, on campuses, in American Jewish institutions, but largely just in American life, as we're seeing kind of a wave of repression. And I, I actually think it's interesting, we're talking about the history of Jewish currents. Of course, the first editor of Jewish currents, Morris Shappies, was imprisoned during McCarthyism. And I think we are actually seeing a second wave. Many people are saying that we're seeing a second wave of, you know, a different brand of McCarthyism in this moment as it relates to pro-Palestine speech. So that has been a major focus of what we've been doing in the last couple months. So there are many things that, that we might want to be able to uh, get into with you, but I think maybe we should start with that phrase, weaponization of anti-Semitism. I began to feel and use that term. I thought I almost invented it because I didn't hear anyone else using it. But when what was happening in the British Labour Party with mm -hmm. Jeremy Corbyn as the leader, a f rather far left by Labour Party, Party standards leader, and suddenly, or you know, it seemed there was this onslaught of of criticism of him and the Labour Party from the Jewish community uh, in Britain, saying that there was they were anti Semites or soft on anti Semites, and this became a fierce and very destructive to the left wing of the Labour Party, which had been growing and strong, and to the point of purging him from the Labour Party. I don't know what else. I haven't followed it closely. But but that, I'm just using that as the maybe starting point of at least my awareness that there was a pretty organized effort, and it wasn't 
even though it was all about anti-Semitism, what it seemed to be about was an onslaught on the left using that issue. So now the next episode that really got me uh, upset was the Anti-Defamation League, which purports to be the, the, the arbiter of bigotry against Jews the great defense framework by the very, very nature of their stated mission against anti-Semitism. As soon, almost the day after October 7th, they send out a letter to hundreds of American universities demanding investigation of the student uh, groups that support justice for Palestine on the grounds that they might be aiding and abetting terrorism. And when I read this, I thought, wow, this is exactly like the 50s, where left-wing groups were literally banned on on hundreds and hundreds of American campuses, simply because they were said to be Communist Party fronts and so forth. You know, fortunately, actually, I think the New York Times maybe uh, did a good service right at that time, because I think they reported on on what was this Justice for Palestine student movement. And they described it as very loose, very diverse, and really undermined the the picture of these uh, groups as somehow connected to Hamas. That story did. But nevertheless, the ADL, then that was coupled with this big episode at the University of Pennsylvania where they uh, the president was being pressured to stop a conference on on Palestinian literature with with Palestinian writers on the grounds that anti-Semites were going to attend it. And one of the people singled out, and I found this really bizarre, was the really great Vietnamese-American writer, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who had also been in trouble at, at the 92nd Street Y because he'd signed some statements or uh, favoring BDS. And he was a speaker at this pen conference. Anyway, Jewish donors started to really demand that uh, the president, they were, they were withdrawing donations and so forth. I don't, I, I'm going on more than I wanted to. Just to say, these got me, I've been upset ever since these things started. And everything's gotten worse, of course, with the treatment of the presidents of the universities by Congress and all of the rest of it. So, and so you, you guys at Jewish Currents recognize similarly, there's a weaponization of anti-Semitism. I want to throw out one thought about that, which hasn't been mentioned. I think there's a long project to try to wean the Jewish American community away from the democratic party and from liberal politics. That's, a long-standing thing, which has lar- largely not been successful, and I think that's one of the foundations. It's not simply about defending Israel, although that's really important. Israel, current Israeli government, it's it's really almost a Republican plot and a and a class, you know, upper class, you know, a ruling class plot within Jew- the Jewish world. I, I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but I really think. There's this has been a long-standing dynamic. So uh, I'll shut up now, and Ariel, and let you let you ruminate from where you're where you're sitting about all of this. 
I mean, I don't know. You've done a very good job of, of laying out the dynamics. First of all, I'll just say that the ADL has been really a, a leader in this for years and years, long before the Labor Party right. uh, yes. debacle. If anything, what happened with Corbyn was sort of picked up from the playbook that had been that that was going on with the ADL since the 70s and 80s when they coined the term the new anti-Semitism to describe Israel-related, quote-unquote, anti-Semitism, and use that as a way to get professors fired from their jobs, to cancel speaking engagements of Palestinians, to, to generally make the Palestinian narrative as such taboo within uh, the American political discourse. And that dynamic has continued with more and more force behind it for a number of years. We've reported on the fact that, for example, anti-boycott laws that exist now in, I think, something like 37 states in the United States, patently unconstitutional. And in fact, we reported on the fact that the ADL's own lawyers in their civil rights department advised them that these are constitutional, and yet they've supported them in almost every case. And so we, we're seeing how, and, and I'll say also, it's not just in the United States, we're seeing it very much uh, in Germany right now, which is essentially banned protest completely, is starting to ban, you know, is talking about banning the kefiyah and other symbols of Palestinian identity. And we're seeing kind of in the Western world wholesale, a sort of, a sort of criminalization of Palestinian narrative and Palestinian identity on the basis of of protecting Jews and uh, warding off anti-Semitism. And of course, this is very much about protecting the state of Israel from, from criticism. And I will say that there have also been, there has been money flowing from the Israeli government into, for example, outside campus groups. A lot of the stuff that's happening on campuses is not driven by students. It's driven by outside Yes. groups. And, and actually, there was just published uh, the budgets of some of these groups and their enormous budgets, but they're not, they're, again, they're not campus groups. And so there's a real agenda that's being pushed here to benefit the state of Israel. It's very unfortunate, of course, because this reinforces the relationship between Judaism and Zionism that many of us are trying to untangle, which is very, very difficult to do, in fact, also because, you know, the Jewish establishment does not want to separate these things. They want them to be an overlapping, an overlapping category. And what it has, what it has meant is, is a sense that Zionism is an identity and not a political ideology, that you cannot, that, that Zionism is a piece of being Jewish as opposed to a political ideology that, that actually in this country several generations ago was not very popular actually right. and is now is right. treated as completely hegemonic. So it really kind of stamps out political diversity in the, in the Jewish community. It makes it invisible. But of course we are not the main victims of this, the main victims of this are Palestinians who are simply trying to tell their own story about their own oppression. Right. Well, and so uh, what, what I was suggesting, it's, it's, it's got even wider implications than just the defense of the state of Israel and the, and the current dominating leadership there. It's, it's more about, it's also about changing the political 
orientation and culture of the Jewish community in the United States is what I think is an intention here. And that's what I was trying to get at. And, and Well, I don't know and, if it's changing the culture because this has, well, I mean, for me, this has been the hegemonic culture that I've grown up in. So I, you know, it's like, we'd have to actually do work to change it back. It's already that the change has happened, I think. Well, what I meant by that change of culture was not about Zionism, but about political liberalism. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I, that's what I think the uh, part of the motive seems to be and because it's so disturbing for the social movements the progressive social movements i think because um jews jewish people have played an important part leadership and powering so much of the social change movements down for for a long time and secondly uh, it's very bad for the jews for having wealthy jewish donors asking to censor speech on campuses is not a way to combat anti-Semitism. I can't believe there isn't discussion in the in the ranks that we're criticizing of is this really helping prevent anti-Semitism or is it fostering it? Well, I mean, the reason that that question isn't being asked is because of the enormous kind of culture of fear. Uh-huh. I mean, because most people have bought the conflation of most Jewish people have bought the conflation of of Jew, Judaism and Zionism and have basically acceded the idea that Zionism is an identity as such, then yeah, a lot of the things that are being, I mean, if that is your starting place, then a lot of the things that are being said on campuses would be threatening to that. Mm-hmm. You know, they happen to be wrong, <laughs> you know, right. but they're, but the fear is real. And, and I think that's really a political question of, in terms of what we do with that fear and how it, how it's redirected. I mean, I think there's a way in which people in the, on the pro-Palestinian left really don't like to think about it. Don't really like to think about that fear and, and don't think about it as the kind of terrain of our organizing, but it, it really is the terrain of our organizing and it has to be, and we have to find a way not just to ignore it and, but but also to to find a way to neutralize it, which also might mean speaking to it or like thinking through, you know, what a framework or a vocabulary that takes it into account might be. That's a very, very hard sell right now on the left, I would say. Except for the data that indicate that the younger generation of Jew, Jewish Jews in, in this country are more alienated from Israel than we've ever seen. And yeah, uh, can I jump yeah, in there with a quick, because I think that's not like that, that is true at the same time that something Ariel is saying is, I think, really important, which is yeah. that, you know, being critical, there's a range of political views that should be legitimate in our discussion when it comes to Israel and the, you know, the right wing conservative forces that we're talking about have been narrowing that range. And it doesn't even reflect the actual opinions of like Jewish Americans, especially when you take into account, you know, Jewish Americans of all generations, but that's separate from, or it's not exactly the same thing as the fear that Jewish Americans are feeling the vulnerability as well as the, well, the, the facts of anti-Semitism in the United States and in the world that are real. So, you know, I, I want to 
I'm going to line up a question here for you, Ariel, because I'm the guy that I'm sitting listening to. This always happens. I'm listening to Dick talk about the Corbin issue, and I'm sitting thinking like, yeah, but Corbin, I think, has been or was soft on anti-Semitism within the Labour Party and within the British left. I think there were legitimate criticisms of them for that. I think that there's anti-Semitism, disgusting, brutal, naked anti-Semitism throughout British society and throughout the, and frankly, within the pro-Palestinian movement. And that had to be addressed. And there was a factional purge, you know, at the same time, this was the right wing of the party purging the left. It's continued. It's gotten way wider than Corbinites and so forth. And people will in bad faith characterize everything that's critical of Israel as anti-Semitism. Like all of those things are true at the same time. And how do we balance those things? How can those of us who are not Jewish sort of be in solidarity with people in the Jewish community that are wrestling with those things? How do we stand up against anti-Semitism on the left in black communities, wherever it is in all of our spaces? How do we stand up against it while also not sort of falling for this kind of rube, this trick that that you guys have done a good job articulating or talking about, which is to smuggle in a bunch of right wing bullshit along with being wary of anti or like cognizant of anti-Semitism? I think it's a good question, but I I do want to go back to to just to make a clarification, which is that the fear that I'm describing is is no less real for also being for, for not being rational on some level. I mean, I'm, you know, I just want to say, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that fear is in response all the time to real anti-Semitism. I mean, the truth of the matter is, as you see these polls and Jews are reporting an enormous amount of unsafety right now, and the numbers do not support that in terms of what they're actually going through. Like they're financially comfortable. They're not being physically attacked on the whole they do not, you know, they are not blocked from achieving certain things or like, you know, you know, getting an education, getting a job, getting housing. So the, the fact of the matter is, is a lot of the a lot of the sense of anti-Semitism is just that it's a sense. And a lot of it does come from Israel related stuff. And I, I also want to distinguish the British context, the European context. Uh, from the American context. I don't think that America, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not anti-Semitism in America at all. That is not what I'm saying. But I don't think that the European legacy of anti-Semitism is quite the same as as in America. So I just want to start there. But I, I think it's a good question about sort of how do we, what do we do? What does it mean? And I, I think that the main thing to keep in mind is to always keep the power analysis in mind, which is to say that, yes, like you can confront anti-Semitism uh, where you power in, in a given exchange. And most of the time, I mean, Shal Magid actually, who's a, a Jewish academic, I think currently at Dartmouth, uh, writes about how, you know, Anti-Semitism is real. It is a real oppression, but right, but in the United States right now, it is not a structural oppression. And I think we really do need to keep an eye on that. And that should affect how we respond to that within our movements, which is to say that like 
these kinds of feelings of fear are not like we can respond to people and be compassionate towards people, but we cannot build structures to respond to, to them that, that when they don't correspond to a structural reality. I think that this is part of actually like a broader problem in identity politics where we trust people to define their own oppression and to like, you know, tell you what should be done about it. Actually, I think that that's the kind of question that we need to tackle together in large coalitions. And sometimes people are not the best, uh, the best reporters or representatives of their own experience. Sometimes trauma uh, is really a barrier in that regard. And the Jewish community is dealing with a large amount of intergenerational trauma that has actually kind of muddied the waters here. So again, like I think that I don't have a good answer to your question, but all I can really say is that we need to be, as others have said, soft on people and hard on structures and to be and be able to listen to people and make space for their feelings without uh, creating structural solutions for problems that are not structural. So I was going to ask you whether you think, for example, on campuses or within the pro-Palestinian world, groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, do you think people are getting the point that you're making, uh, the, the Jew, Jewish folks in those movements, getting the point that they shouldn't just be disdainful and dismissive toward the feelings of fear that are present among their you know, fellow Jewish students and so forth, but try to come to grips with it. You think that's an idea that's out there or, or, or Yeah, I not? mean, I don't, I don't think, look, I think that right now in an all hands moment, I don't think that JVP has room, has time or SJP for that matter. I mean, forget about it to slow down and say, well, what are Zionists feeling right now? And how do we reach out to them? Like, it's just not, they're trying to call for a ceasefire. They're trying to disrupt. They're trying to kind of get in the way of business as usual. I don't think that they necessarily have time to, you know, to deal with, with, with the feelings of Jews on campus who are feeling threatened. Do I think that this is something that needs to be, that there needs to be an effort in the long term to try to bring some of these people in, especially young people, especially people on college campuses who, who probably have grown up in a hugely, you know, an environment where they've only heard one side of the story and can change their minds and maybe will in the coming years? Yes, I do think that. <laughs> but to ask them to do it from this particular moment seems like a lot to hold because of the urgency. That's interesting. It's interesting that you, yeah. I mean, and that completely makes sense, I think, kind of across the board. Everyone has sort of limited bandwidth as the carnage is, you know, continuing. But it's really, I, I was struck by by what you're saying because I, I find myself spending a lot of time to the extent I have a lot of time nowadays, but actually talking with Zionists, like progressive Zionists, about the issue and tr and finding trying to find language and a and a a balance between empathy and tough talk about reality, but tr but really trying to keep a friendship and a bridge going because I do see this the that like the the mainstream discourse. Uh, Jewish American or even diaspora wide needs to shift. And yeah. it like in order to shift it, 
we've got to find that balance between and and then also just like you know i'm not you know wait i also really resonate what you're saying about identity politics where on the one hand i'm like also trained in all of these tech techniques of allyship of like i'm not jewish so i can't tell you what real anti-semitism looks like all of these caveats but also like hey this is real the whole world is like you know, burning as a result of this, I get to have an opinion and I'm going to share it with you as well. Also, you're an American, you're an American whose tax dollars are going to. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, finding all of these things is, so it was really interesting for you to, and it was good for me to hear you saying like, there's a time and a place for all of these conversations. It's understandable. They can't all happen at the same time. There's a a sort of hierarchy of needs here of stopping the, 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 the military action in Gaza. But I do think we need leadership inside and outside the Jewish community to be like pied pipering people away from the cliff. I mean, that's just like what it's felt like a lot is like people saying things. I'm like, bro, you would never say that in any other context or about any other group of people. You're losing your your mind here, your your soul, really, your values, if you're devaluing Palestinian lives like this because you're mad or scared at this moment or... Yeah cheering on Republican congresswomen as they like beat up on academic, like any of that stuff. It's like, that's not you, bro. Like <laughs> It's a real culture of grievance right now. Yeah. And the, what it means, what it does is it posits Jews as the biggest victims in all of this, even as Palestinians are undergoing what many people are calling a genocide. And you, Ariel, I, I, you've written how, and I've, I share this, how, scary it is in a way to hear some of the arguments that the pro-Israel ordinary folks use. They're so blind to what you would have thought, just just like what Duraco was was uh, indicating, blind to values that they probably were, were expressing several months ago about the world, that kind of apologetics. One thing that I've thought in terms of um, movement tactics is that the ceasefire demand is a unifying one that can, in fact, reach a lot of um, Jews who are otherwise, uh, you know, not re- ready to endorse the Palestinian agenda, but uh, do believe that uh, it is this is not the way for Israel to be behaving, and that we need to end the end the war as quickly as possible, and to. Uh, it's a unifying demand and 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 a basis for some of the communication that we're talking about. Does that make sense? Ceasefire, because the the early stages of this whole development were focused on which cause do you support, Israel or Palestine? And uh, I think I think we're at a different point at this now, and it's a healthier point, which is. It's not good for the Jews for Israel to be doing what it is doing. It is not. Uh, uh, it, it is not good f- for our human values. It, it's not good as an understatement. Anyway, so, I wish I felt that that was widespread in the Jewish community, but I do not feel that that's the case. At least generationally. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have thought of. Give me tell. Yeah, go ahead. Say, Sorry. Can you share yeah. more about? Yeah. There's been a conflation, basically, of of these campus politics with what's going on on the ground. And it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially because if you're concerned about safety, you know, the fact that 1,100 plus people were just killed within Israel, uh, you know, nothing comparable has happened to Jews anywhere else in 
the world since the Holocaust. So Israel is probably the least safe place to be a Jew at this moment, in particular moment in human history. But yeah, I mean, I think that that certainly at the institutional level, there is broad support for this war. Certainly generationally, Gen X and above, there is broad support for this war. It breaks down it breaks down generationally and it also breaks down among Jews who are not synagogue goers, people who are quote unquote unaffiliated. Uh, but generally I do think that support is high and that and that the narratives that people have had to consume in order to justify it are also sort of narratives that, as we've discussed, askew the broader the broader context and and have sort of been have divorced them from reality because it requires them to look at what's happening, to look at sort of like the wanton indiscriminate destruction and say, well, Israel must have a target. Israel must be pursuing a military goal here. There's an end that we just don't see. And in fact, you know, all the experts, all the policy experts and everything that we've seen coming out of the Israeli government shows that there isn't an end that we haven't seen. There is no military plan and that the bombing has been completely indiscriminate. But, you know, I talk to people in my family, for example, who talk about how Israel has been so humanitarian. They've they've evacuated a million people from the north to the south where it's safe. That was that they did that out of the goodness of their hearts. And actually it's Hamas that's stealing all the resources. It's not that there isn't enough, you know, it's not that they've limited access to food and water or turned it off completely as it were. It's that Hamas is storing, you know, storing it and stealing it. So, you know, the kinds of narratives that, that have to, you know, that can justify this are the kinds of narratives that completely divorce them from reality at this point. But I do, and I do think politics, that there is I think the support. thing that scares me the most about this moment is that people who really should know better than believe Bibi Netanyahu, I mean, like what, like this is, and this government, which is a fascist government. I mean, it's a, in any other country, these same people would dismiss them. They would dismiss Trump. There's no way that these folks would be you know, cheering on a war led by a Trump administration or giving that administration a, a, a blank check. And yet you hear people say these bizarre things like, well, first we have to beat Hamas and then then we'll have an election and get rid of Bibi. And, and it was like, but he's leading the war. Like the people that say genocidal things are the ones in government doing it. And that's when people's loyalty to a country trumps their politics. That's always when my spidey sense tingles the most like whoever it is well yeah. i won't get i won't go deeply yeah. into what you just said but it's a pretty deep point because i've always felt the the view among liberal zionists that we can have a jewish democratic state is an oxymoron i um well i don't for the record i don't go that far necessarily yeah. like i'm agnostic on the question you know it's not for me it's not my right. question but the clearly this government i mean it's like this state this government this israel shouldn't be given unqualified support and like nobody yeah. who's not who's like a human being should you know dispute that and yet here we are and having this conversation with people who are our friends and that's and again and i think there is actually a very clear parallel on the other side and the completely uncritical analysis of Palestinian authority, whether it's the Palestinian authority or Hamas that happens on the left and like what kind of Palestine will be free and all of those questions. 
also get subsumed by behind a national question. Actually, let me pick up there. Ariel, is there anything that is animating the Palestinian liberation solidarity movement, which I think all three of us are in sympathy with, but is there anything going on over on that side that concerns you as a progressive left Jew per human being? I mean, look, like every movement, the Palestinian national movement and the Palestinian liberation movement are extremely diverse. They're extremely broad. And I think that actually the amount of discourse that most of the American left sees of the Palestinian conversation is like a pinky nail. I mean, and that's the truth. And so there's sort of like a caricature at this point of Palestinian politics that is just constrained by essentially not knowing the terrain, not really, you know, not speaking Arabic, knowing who the players are in this conversation and essentially taking you know, 19-year-olds on campus as like the statesmen for the Palestinian national movement, which is wrong. The people that I speak to generally are talking about a revived PLO that would unite the factions, that would get rid of the corrupt PA, and that would, you know, move towards essentially a, a negotiated solution in one form or another. I think people are talking about a revived PLO and, you know, the leaving behind the corrupt PA, uh, uniting the factions of the Palestinian liberation movement and moving towards a negotiated solution. And what that looks like is to be determined. There are people in the Palestinian national movement who want a two-state solution still, and there are people who recognize that, that, like me, that that is sort of geographically impossible at this point and are moving more towards a framework of equality, reparations, and right of return in whatever form. And in terms of what things that, you know, and I'm behind that, and I think that that sounds good, and I think that the people who are going to do that are sort of the vanguard of the Palestinian movement with input from the Palestinian street, essentially. And to be honest, I think that I haven't heard a single person, most people that I talk to are saying that that the PA at this point is is too corrupt to be united under Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, but certainly, you know, under Marwan Barghouti, who's in prison, that would be a completely different circumstance. Everybody says that Hamas needs to be included in the PLO. They are a very popular piece of Palestinian society. Some people say without the military wing. Some people say with the military wing. All of these conversations are taking place. And we do have to remember that even groups that we think do terrible things historically have been at the, the negotiating table and have made deals that lead to a lasting just peace. So yeah, if, you, if you exclude terrorists from any Middle East uh, peace deal, it's not a peace deal on either side. Yeah. Or I mean, yeah. or from any right. peace, I Northern mean, Ireland. like think about, think about the IRA or, or the, the ANC or, the or basically anybody. Matter. Yeah, that's what I meant. Exactly. Or the Irgun, exactly. exactly. I mean, like the terrorists on the on the Israeli side are also going to have to be at the table. So, so in terms of like what bothers me in terms of what I see on the, you know, in the Palestine movement, I think that what's frustrating is just the question of what kinds of conversations can be had and can't be had. I think that there is a, there is a sense of 
siege, which, you know, which is literal in the case of Gaza, but it also means that, that there, that there needs to be an appearance of unity at all costs. And that shuts down valuable conversations that need to be had. Maybe they, again, again. maybe they can't be had from within this moment, you know, as the bombs are still dropping and tens of thousands of people are, you know, have already been killed and are, and this will continue. But we are going to have to have these conversations and some of them are about violence and what the terms of those violence, what, what the terms of that violence is, are about the role of Jews in in the movement. And, you know, are we just kind of like silent allies or are we, you know, stakeholders, essentially? I just think that these are really open questions that the Palestinian movement is going to have to take up. You know, I do think that there are a lot of people in the Palestinian movement who feel that it actually doesn't matter what Jews think, you know, that it's too hard to convince Zionists and that it it shouldn't be their job. There's like a whole other population of people that can put pressure that like there isn't a huge barrier and they haven't left reality, you know, and it's hard to argue with that. But I would say that for Jews on the left, that's not really a question as far as I'm concerned. Like, I feel like we have to find a way to speak to at least parts of the Jewish community, the parts that are possible to move. We can't leave that conversation entirely, even if we don't face it primarily. So I want to take off from that to ask you about something that has caught my attention and fascination, which is called Standing Together. And I think you've done a little reporting about them, or maybe this seems to me a a new thing in Israel, uh, because it's not just an experiment in communication between Jews and Palestinians that have gone on periodically and have some value, I guess. But this is a politically conscious effort to do and create a new left in Israel, as far as I can define it. Um, and it's based on the recognition that both Palestinians and Jews are there. That's standing together, meaning we're not, neither is going to leave. Let's figure out a joint politics based on full equality and collaboration and grassroots organizing, which to me is also another rather novel element of what they're trying to do. What do you know about, am I being too romantic or, or is this a promising development? I think you're being too romantic, unfortunately. I wish I didn't have to. I think standing together is great. I think they're doing amazing work. I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you should support them 100%. But at this point, the left in Israel is completely minuscule. I mean, like we cannot. And I think that the way that a sort of progressive American, you know, especially liberal Zionists kind of hold up this shrinking minuscule, repressed community and basically act like we can support the whole of what's going on as long, you know, as long as we're supporting through these groups is is delusional because the fact of the matter is they don't have broad support. And the other fact of the matter is, is with a group like Standing Together, you're still within a with a within a 48 framework. That is, you're still talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel. There there is not room generally to issue beyond those never defined borders to the West Bank, to Gaza, you know, on a certain level, something that has to happen first is for the Palestinian body to have some unity 
in order to be a real political force. And until we're talking about that, then it's really hard to imagine what a partnership with Jews on equal footing actually looks like, because it's hard to imagine, you know, how how they come to the table as as sort of equals on some level, not equals like obviously under the apartheid system, but but politically, you know, because Palestinian citizens of Israel are cut off from Palestinians in Gaza and from the West Bank. And I agree with you completely, like any solution needs to come from people who, you know, from people who are recognizing that that both peoples are there to stay and that no one is going to leave. And and I think Omdim Beyachad is a great kind of vehicle for that message and is modeling how we do that. But I mean, maybe I'll be proven wrong and maybe October 7th just looks like a total free, you know, post-October 7th in Israel just looks like a free fall into fascism. But actually, we're going to move in another direction once people recognize that it hasn't made them safer and the war is unpopular and Bibi's unpopular. You know, like there are these seeds that things could go in another direction. But the fact of the matter is, is Israeli society has been moving in this direction for a really, really long time. And I just don't see those trends reversing overnight. And again, not to say that we don't abandon our leftist brethren on the ground, Israeli, you know, Jewish and Palestinian, but I think that we would need to see a partnership that transcends those borders. And right now we don't even, the system does not allow for that. So as far as you know, the the people within standing together don't have a method or a clear plan for making that connection. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it's just not part of their mandate. I mean, even before this, so they've been around for many years and before this, like their their primary terrain of organizing was not necessarily on on occupation stuff. It was about like disability. Or, you know, they were kind of like a like a move on or something in the U.S. Like feminism, social services. Like you know, they they kind of built, which is a great strategy. I mean, they built up support through kind of bread and butter progressive organizing that would be more popular than thinking about, you know, a political s- solution to to the Israel-Palestine situation. And, you know, now because of October 7th and everything that's happening, they've sort of, more of their energy is going in that direction, which I think is great. And honestly, I've been really, really inspired by what they've Well, also, I've heard, I've heard from friends uh, over there that all, they were very good about injecting the issue of the occupation and and Palestinian rights into the discussion, um, into the protests against Bibi and against the constitutional reforms. Yes, but but again, even in that regard, they were mm-hmm. completely marginal, and and nobody will deny that. Yeah, who, I don't, who yeah, really I don't watches those was... things closely? There was certainly a possibility there, and and just by their presence and the presence of the anti-occupation bloc more generally in those protests, there was certainly. A, a normalization of some of that as part of this broader kind of centrist or center left movement. But that was never the character of the movement. And, 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 you know, for the most part, they were Palestinian citizens of Israel generally did not attend those protests because they were so militaristic and that those groups were often physically attacked during those protests. So I I just like, don't want to overstate 
the extent to which it's impossible to overstate how grim it is. Well, we're going to be checking grim. in with some folks in Israel and would love to pick your brain about other people you think we should be talking with. Would also like to get some ideas of links we can put in the show notes and so forth where people can get more information, especially sure. you said about getting a better picture of Palestinian democracy, like the debate going on within Palestinian society about um, strategy mm -hmm. and politics in the future and so forth, which is yeah, completely obscured in the, the whole discussion, I think, in the United States. So before we let Ariel um, go rest, which I know is important to her, what would you say the magazine's looking toward in the immediate coming time? I, I should say I'm very impressed with how you've been able to reach out to people like Peter Beinart, who I think is one of the great guides to thinking in all of this, and he's got a, an editorial slot in uh, in Jewish Currents. And I see that Masha Gessen is now on the board of directors of Jewish Currents. So you are really becoming what I guess your ambition is, is to really be a center for um, a, a Jewish new left, if you want to put it that way. Anything you'd like us to know about coming forward for the magazine? Honestly, right now, we're just trying to hold on. I mean, it's been a really, really hard couple months and everybody's exhausted. And we had a whole issue planned on Florida where we were actually going to dig into basically the seeds of American authoritarianism and Ron DeSantis. Um, and that's still extremely important, but it feels like in another, like it exists in another dimension right now from like what we're mostly looking at. And so that's a, a big bummer because we've been planning that issue for a year and it's been um, pushed back. So honestly, I don't have a ton to say, you know, we're going to keep trying to contest the space of Jewish politics more broadly, um, trying to give people a different way of thinking about, you know, trying to give them a bridge out of the way of thinking that they are in right now, while also, you know, not catering to them because the people who are already on side need, um, you know, intellectual leadership. And that's, that's really the balance that we are. And you're doing a great job. You, you really need to be told that, I guess, to, to boost Absolutely. you, you boost you up who are listening to this and what we put on our, what we'll put on our, uh, sites is that it, the website for Jewish Currents is an is a pretty much daily place for a lot of very important reporting and writing. It isn't just the quarterly magazine, which is book-length phenomenon when you get it, it that, and which is extraordinarily interesting and exciting to immerse in, but the website itself is, is a major force. And I assume you're also there's a world out there in Brooklyn of actual human beings who get together and, you know, I, I'm imagining that you're from what you, what I, what I've been able to understand, there's a widening actual audience of especially younger people who are out there in the world uh, as well as uh, consuming what you're doing. I'm very grateful for everything that you're doing and I almost want to protect you and not have you burn out, please. Well, I will say that if you're listening and you're interested, definitely check out jewishcurrents.org and subscribe. We have a membership program now with like a lot of events and you'll get merch and fun stuff. So 
Yes, um, and I uh, check that out for sure. I might be in touch with you guys about making you know trying to create some membership efforts out here in uh, California or in Santa Barbara. So definitely, thanks again yeah. uh, for taking the time with us. And there's a lot of Thank issues we haven't, of course, delved into because maybe the, the one of the, not positive, but a feature of this situation is is the need I, I think all three of us have that are shared by a lot of other people. We need to figure out so much stuff. It's really, we need constantly getting more informed and being in touch with what other people are thinking is particularly seems important in a way I don't think I've ever experienced in, in this particular crisis. So very glad to make this connection, Ariella. And uh, and I hope that, uh, by the way, that this episode can somehow get featured on your website uh, as, as a link, you know, a link to that yeah, once we get it out. So thank you very much. Way to hustle, Dick. That's good. That's good. Yes, thank you for taking the time. This was really wonderful and educational. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.